Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Life Lessons from King David. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 8 to 10, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, David Establishes His Kingdom. Numerous studies have been done about the life cycles of civilizations. You know, experts may disagree on the number of stages required for a civilization to go through its life cycle, but several things are clear. No civilization or nation or empire or kingdom lasts forever. A civilization usually begins in some kind of bondage, then it proceeds to some form of spiritual vision, that is to say, There is a vision, which is often of God, or in some cases, I guess, it's the gods that unite a civilization. You know, that's surprising to most contemporary Westerners who think of their culture as a primarily secular one. But the only reason we find that surprising is because we're not living in an ascending civilization, but rather in a descending one when belief and faith and a common spiritual vision have been discarded. But back to the life cycles of civilizations. You know, first there's some kind of bondage that requires release or deliverance. Suffering must be overcome, and in order to do that, a civilization gains a common spiritual vision, and then courage is required along with sacrifice and a willingness to give oneself to something greater than self. Now, when a civilization succeeds, the next stage is often the gaining of abundance and wealth. But that leads to complacency. Sacrifice and a common spiritual vision become less important. And eventually, a sense of entitlement descends on that civilization, and that's followed by the sense that whenever one suffers, it must be evidence that God or the spiritual vision is false. Next is deep cynicism and a loss of faith, and that's followed by a vision for the fulfillment of self and not a vision for God as the highest good. That, of course, is accompanied by corruption. Eventually, a generation arises that has no memory of the faith and the courage and and the suffering and self-sacrifice that gave rise to their civilization. Then self and individualism are now all-encompassing, and that leads to a desperate condition and eventually a dysfunctional culture in which, given enough time, it collapses, and then, then it falls back into the same bondage out of which the culture first came. You know, in a real way, that is the story of ancient Israel. God leads them out of the bondage of Egypt. Mount Sinai, then, is the place of spiritual vision and direction. He is God. He's righteous. Obedience to him and faith in his good purposes, those are the highest good. Self-indulgence is seen as a profound evil. Sacrifice for the glory of God is the highest good as Joshua and the people take the promised land. And by the time we come to David, we will see the the people finally securing the freedom that the God of Abraham has promised to them. And if we go forward, we come to Solomon, and we find a time of abundance and prosperity. And then, of course, comes idolatry and seeking of one's own course in life. The common good and the worship of the one true God is forgotten. Self-indulgence, which leads to idolatry, is now commonplace. And then, of course, corruption and dysfunction occur. And so, by the time we come to the Babylonian invasion, Israel has already destroyed herself. The Babylonian invasion is merely God's assessment of a culture that could no longer exist. 
Well, as we come to 2 Samuel 8 to 10, we are at the place where David is leading his nation to the freedom of having control over their own land. This is the triumph of their hopes and dreams. The nation is still in its ascendancy. No, it's not perfect. Sins are committed, but trust in God is great and a willingness to lay down one's own life for the glory of God. The promise of God is of great value. Now, as we read these chapters, we might wonder what we're supposed to learn from this. You know, I would say at least two things. First, it will teach us what it looks like for a civilization to be reaching for the fulfillment of their dreams. You see, we who live in North America need to see this. This is especially true of North American Christians. Get a vision of what life looks like when people don't ask, how can God allow me to suffer? But rather, what does God want me to suffer so that I might inherit his promises? See, we need to glimpse at a world that looks completely alien to us and imagine that such a world can and really did exist. And second, we need to capture a vision for the kingdom of God. Indeed, if we judge our own spiritual condition rightly, look, we've been delivered out of the bondage of slavery and sin, and now we need to fight to inherit the promises of eternity. That is, we need to reject the values of a declining culture, and we need to realize what it is to have been transferred into the kingdom of light. Let's begin and get a flavor of what's occurring beginning in 2 Samuel 8, verse 1. It says, after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Metheg Amma out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, Metheg Amma is most likely a location or an area. We don't know now where it is, but clearly at the time of David, this must have been an important location. And so, for David to have taken this place from the Philistines is to rob the Philistines of their power base. From this moment on, the Philistine power in Canaan is broken and we never hear of them as a legitimate threat to Israel again. As formidable as they once were, David was able to decisively defeat them and therefore to pacify them. The next act of David is going to surprise us. 2 Samuel 8 verse 2 says, And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Now, read from our perspective, I mean, this seems overwhelmingly cruel and unjust. He's just killed two-thirds of their army whom he has captured in war. And and from our perspective, it breaks the Geneva Convention. I mean, how do we handle that? What makes this even more complicated is that we know that David's great-grandmother was a Moabite. Since David himself had some Moabite blood, why this cruelty? So let's start by mentioning that there are those who question the translation here. And they think that David measured the Moabites using two different lines, one line to be put to death and another line to be kept alive. And so they argue that we don't know how long each line was. That is, we don't actually know how many were included in the line to be put to death. You know, it might be two-thirds, it might be less. You know, that may or may not be the case. Look, I'm not in a position to judge the debate on the intricacies of Hebrew grammar here, but I do think it's important to understand this action in wider context. The nation of Moab came into being from one man whose name was Moab. He was born to Abraham's nephew, Lot. Lot, you might remember, had an incestuous relationship with his daughter, resulting in the son, Moab, whose descendants became a nation. They resided on the southeastern side of the Dead Sea, and if the Philistines were on the west of Israel, well, the Moabites were on the east. 
And furthermore, the relationship between Moab and Israel had a very difficult history. You know, during the time of the wilderness wanderings, it was the Moabites who had hired Balaam, the false prophet, to curse Israel. And when that didn't work, they hatched a plan to seduce the Israelite men with pagan rituals and with sexual trysts. In consequence of that, we find an interesting passage in Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 and 4, which says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Well, there it is. Well, we also know that during the reign of King Saul, 1 Samuel 14, 47 mentions that Saul fought against his enemies on every side. And then when mentioning who those enemies were, the text mentions that he also fought against the Moabites. And so it would appear that the Moabites, among the other nations, decided to join forces and create an alliance and attempt to force Israel from their land. So they're a constant threat and Saul never succeeded in defeating them. And so by the time of David, we see that David is interested in eliminating all threats from his kingdom permanently. And so in order to break the power of Moab, he simply executed a portion of their military. He broke their power and brought them to heal him. Look, I'm not excusing him by saying that. I'm simply saying that's what he did. Let's continue reading verses 3 and 4. David also defeated Hadadatzer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. So the king of Zobah was toward the north in the area of Syria. Realizing that King Hadadatzer had established a massive force that would be used against Israel, David seems to have gone north now to take them on. He not only defeats them, but he hamstrings their horses. And later on, we're told that the Syrians attempted to help, but David struck down 22,000 men of Syria, and then he built garrisons in Syria, and he dominated their region so much so that he demanded tribute of them. Every month, Back to the Bible Canada sends out a ministry update email. This email includes links to the newest Bible teaching resources, special messages from Dr. Neufeld and others, and an exclusive five-minute audio program called Five and Five. This program is my opportunity to ask Dr. Neufeld, Phil, and other members of the team five insightful questions in only five minutes. All this exclusive to our monthly update email, sent out once a month, and you can have it sent to you by simply signing up at Back to the Bible or if you'd rather just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. And when you're signing up, make sure to take a look at all of the free ministry resources available, our bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine, and the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app, just to name a few. For more information or to support this ministry financially, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. By the time we come to the end of 2 Samuel 8, which is a list of David's victories, you know, it becomes clear that the wars are not over, but David has effectively secured his own nation from attack. 
To the south of him was Egypt, but the Egyptians had very little attention at that time of entering into Israel. It was a relatively peaceful frontier to the south. To the west were the Philistines, and David simply smashed them. To the east were the Moabites along with others, and David executed a portion of their army so that they could no longer mount an offense against him. And to the north, well, he won a major victory, even enforcing tribute on the Syrians. Look, we're not told of all the sacrifices that were required to secure the nation, but whatever was required was done. David was ensuring a stable kingdom, one that, if it remained faithful to the Lord, would indeed endure. If Israel, as was true of so many other nations, however, would simply lapse into self-indulgence, none of this would protect them in the future. Well, 2 Samuel 8 and 2 Samuel 10 recounts the military successes of David, and as we've read, it's an impressive list. But 2 Samuel 9, the chapter that's wedged between those two chapters on military conquests, well, that's a striking chapter. So let's begin to read chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Well, those of you who have some knowledge of the American Civil War might remember that Abraham Lincoln was very much concerned with building cohesion in the nation in the aftermath of what had been an uncommonly bloody and brutal war. Feelings of bitterness and hatred were still everywhere palatable on both sides. And so against the advice of some, Lincoln refused to prosecute those who had fought on the Confederate side, even though in truth, those were the men who had tried to divide the nation. Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee were traitors to the nation and were regarded as heroes in the South, as were all those who fought for the South. But no one was charged with crimes for one important reason. If you were ever to rebuild the nation at some level, you had to reconcile a deep hatred that was everywhere. And so the Unionists adopted a policy of leniency. Against this as an example, consider the action of David. You know, he's winning profound wars, and he might well have argued that these wars should have been won years ago, if only Saul hadn't been obsessed with hunting David down and killing him. And on top of that, there were the crimes of Saul. I mean, you might consider the massacre of the priests at Nob. Saul was an intensely evil king, and yet, even after his death, the north of Israel still followed the ill-fated reign of Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and that was inexcusable. But David is now winning wars that should have been won years before and eliminating suffering in Israel. And it would have been very tempting for him to point out all the errors of Saul's kingship and how such errors must never be allowed to reoccur. It might have served David's purpose as well if he had rooted out all who had followed Abner and all who had brought harm to the nation. You know, instead, we find him looking around to show kindness to the house of Saul. Now, if there's anything else that we see in David... As we've seen, he is the kind of ruler who can be brutal towards those nations that seek to destroy Israel. But he's kind and he's gracious to Israel itself, seeking constantly to heal the wounds that might have festered. But our text says he did it for the sake of Jonathan. Now, of course, Jonathan, who's King Saul's son, was David's closest friends. And even though Jonathan was a good bit older than David, and Jonathan was in line for the kingship, Jonathan seems to have understood that, that God had called David to lead Israel after his father. And Jonathan had a request of David. 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 and 15, has Jonathan saying to David, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. 
but do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And David's determined not to wreak havoc on the house of Saul, but he's going to do more. He's determined to show kindness to that house. And so David finds a man named Ziba, who had been a servant of Saul's household. And if anyone knows, if anyone's left alive in Saul's household, this man is going to know. And Ziba tells David there is one left, a son of David's friend Jonathan. He's crippled in both of his feet. Now, in order to find out why he's crippled, we have to go all the way back to 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. And that passage says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. That is to say, when both his father and grandfather died in the battle against the Philistines, in haste to flee in some fashion, the boy had fallen and as a result, probably broke the bones in his feet, and he was a cripple because the bones were unable to heal properly. And he would have, and one has to imagine, after that lived in relative obscurity and secrecy because of his heritage. He would have been fairly poor and unable to care for himself, and in truth, there would have been no advantage for David to actually restore this young man. No one would be looking to Mephibosheth to give future leadership in Israel. This man was not a threat, and it didn't matter if he was helped. But we continue to read in verses 5 to 8. Then David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Well, up to this point, Mephibosheth would not have known why David would have called for him. When David was rising to a level of power that his grandfather could not have dreamt of, Mephibosheth has to assume that David wants no possible competition. And so he ends with his speech by calling himself a dead dog. But David has no revenge in mind. He seeks only to bless. The only ones who ate at David's table in those days would have been his own royal family, as well as, upon invitation, the most important dignitaries, military leaders, and other foreign dignitaries of that day. This was a place of eating and fellowship, but this was also a place where state business was to be done. And David gave Mephibosheth a place at every single meal at that table. Mephibosheth was never absent. And furthermore, David restored to him all the lands that had been owned by the household of Saul. In an instant, he not only rescued Mephibosheth from misery— but he bestowed riches and honor on him, enough to make him dizzy. You know, when we reflect on this passage in this brief moment, David looks so much like Jesus, doesn't he? Pat Sabell wrote a wonderful song some years ago. It was entitled, Jesus, Thank You. The song begins, the mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend, the agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. And then to the chorus. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. 
Jesus, thank you. And that's Mephibosheth, once the enemy of the king by virtue of his heritage, now seated at the place of honor, eating every meal at the king's table, given lands and an inheritance. Well, Jesus did that to us. He took us, the sons and daughters of Adam, the the rebel against God. And rather than crushing us as we deserved, he seated us at his table. It's hard to read the story of David and Mephibosheth and not think of Jesus and all of us who are now seated at the table of the Lord. Is this not a passage of a great king who doesn't need any Mephibosheth at his table, and yet there he is, and yet there we are as well? See, in the midst of David's wars is this symbol of love and grace. You know, 2 Samuel chapter 10 then returns to the theme of warfare and the beginning of the war against Ammon, the brother of Moab. The account begins with a second indication of David's willingness to be kind, but this time it is to the Ammonites. And it ends with Ammon spurning the kindness of David and with Ammon then allying themselves with Syria and a fierce battle that follows. And of course, that ends with David's enemies falling before him. And finally, out of desperation, they make peace with King David. You know, the kingship of David is indeed a part of the ascendancy of Israel, rising to capture all that God has promised to them. May the example of what David did deeply feed our own hearts, for we are in just such a place. We are rising to ascendancy to receive the kingdom that our Father has prepared for us. May all sacrifice that we make seem like a a small thing in these days. Thanks so much, John. Let me tell you what I've been thinking. David's life, it contains both warfare, often brutal, and incredible acts of kindness and grace. And, And I guess I want to ask you, is there a conflict here that we should be considering? Well, it looks at the outset like there is. I mean, we do know that In the time of David, he was called upon to establish the kingdom, and it would involve warfare. Uh, We know that when we come to the New Testament, we have Jesus telling us that the kingdom of God is a kingdom built on his love. And so the kingdom now advances um, through loving our enemies. But let's not mistake some things. We do find in the New Testament that we are involved in spiritual warfare that we are engaged in a great conflict with cosmic powers of evil, Satan and his demons, and that the warfare that we now encounter, even though it's not a war against flesh and blood, is nonetheless a very serious warfare. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Are you still considering joining us for the 2021 Back to the Bible Canada Israel Experience? Well, you'll be excited to know that we anticipate everything is going ahead as planned. But we also understand you may currently have concerns about committing to a vacation in 2021. Well, to assist you in your decision making and provide you with the opportunity to book and travel with us, we have instituted a new trip cancellation policy for this great event. If you've already booked, be assured you've been automatically grandfathered into this new policy. The new policy is detailed on the Israel and Jordan registration forms, but in summary, it provides a 100% refund of your deposit up until November 30th, 2020, should you wish or need to cancel for any reason. So we hope you'll make plans to join us for this life-transforming vacation. For more information about Back to the Bible Canada 2021 Israel Experience, call us at 
662-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.